0: The pace of change today can be overwhelming. What's most important to pay attention to if you want to be creative, successful, innovative? I'm Bob Safian, host of Rapid Response. Rapid Response is a podcast that cuts through the noise, featuring candid conversations twice a week with top business leaders navigating real-time challenges. Leaders like Airbnb's Brian Chesky, the WNBA's Kathy Engelbart, and Khan Academy's Sal Khan. From the team behind the award-winning Masters of Scale podcast comes Rapid Response. Search wherever you get your podcasts to listen and subscribe.
1: We're entering an era in which our enemies can make it look like anyone is saying anything at any point in time. Even if they would never say those things. So, uh, they could have me say things like, I don't know, Killmonger was right.
2: Hi, it's Katerina. You've probably seen this PSA released about two years ago, with Jordan Peele's words coming out of the mouth of President Barack Obama.
1: You see, I would never say these things. At least not in a public address. But someone else would. Someone like Jordan Peele.
2: Peel is doing his famous and eerily accurate Obama impression, using digitally manipulated video to make a strong point about misinformation in deepfakes.
1: This is a dangerous time. Moving forward, we need to be more vigilant with what we trust from the internet.
2: We call these hyper-realistic videos deepfakes because, well, they're fake and because they're not created through ordinary video editing, but through a type of artificial intelligence called deep learning.
0: We'll spend three hours looking at this image and trying to figure out if it's real or not. You've got a fraction of a second if that.
2: Dr. Hani Farid is a computer science professor at UC Berkeley who's been trying to confront the threat of deep fakes, but he's racing to keep up.
0: A billion uploads to Facebook a day, 500 hours of video a minute uploaded to YouTube, hundreds of millions of tweets every day.
2: We'll meet Fareed, who has developed a deep fake detective for debunking them in close to real time. But a debunked video can still go viral. And the problem is only getting worse. Today's deep fakes may seem convincing, but tomorrow's deep fakes will just seem real.
0: Imagine 24, 48 hours before an election, I create a fake video that goes viral. We can swing an election. I'm concern for our democracy both here and abroad, and I don't think we're at the low point yet.
2: I'm Katerina Fake. How is technology impacting our humanity? It's the question of our times. I made a discovery that was literally unimagined by any human being. There's a sort of a creepiness where somebody is really mistaking the tech for being real.
3: Trust me, that stuff is going on. Penetrating the consciousness in the technology
2: space and the public. This is a show where we take a single technology and ask what's its greatest potential.
0: I mean, really exciting things, enormously complex.
2: And what could possibly go wrong? We're just looking at each other thinking, oh my God, the
0: future is in our hands. I'm honestly sort of on the fence.
2: Our boldest new technologies can help us flourish as human beings. Now
3: it's accelerating.
2: Absolutely. Or destroy the very thing that makes us human.
3: I I don't have any doubt. We have to become more informed. What
2: I like to say is any technology in
4: human
1: history is neutral. It's
2: how we decide use it. Failure is not an option. It is not an option. This is Should This Exist. Well, we're right on time for our meeting. (laughs) Hi, we're back with Should This Exist at one of my favorite spots on the UC Berkeley campus. It's, I think, the most beautiful Berkeley University building. It has all of these beautiful Victorian features like a mansard roof and a widow's walk. And this is the School of Information, which used to be the School of Library Sciences. I used to serve on the board. As you might guess from the fact that this campus is open, we recorded this pre-COVID. We've come here to see Dr. Hani Farid, a pioneer in the analysis of digital images. We found him. Hi. Great to meet you. Katerina
0: Faith. Nice to meet you, too. I've just discovered that Neil Diamond is a f-ing genius.
2: You did? Honey is an expert in cutting-edge artificial intelligence. But his musical tastes aren't so current. Why is he a genius?
0: I just love his music. Like, it's been a long time since I've listened to
2: him. Right.
0: And I just sort of, like, rediscovered him. And I, just...
2: I literally just met him. And all of a sudden, he's got me singing Sweet Caroline. Touching, Touching you. you. See? Born Touching. In See? Anyway, love real time. All right.
0: Okay, that's not why you came to talk to me, though, is it?
2: No, but honey oh, and I that's come to this conversation good. with other interests in common. He's one of the foremost experts in digital photo forensics, evaluating photos and videos for their authenticity in trials with news organizations and nonprofits. And I was the co-founder of Flickr. I'm here to talk with him about a technology that's been around for a while, where we've already seen some of its dark underbelly and are bracing for more deep
0: And the idea is basically pretty simple, which is that you are now using advances in machine learning and artificial intelligence to do the hard work of what used to be a digital artist. So it used to be somebody in the darkroom painting over a negative and re-exposing it. To a talented artist in Photoshop now is someone who downloads some code um, and says, replace this person's face with this person's face, and, and it's done. done automatically. It just yeah.
2: happens. Honey Farid is trying to diffuse these AI-generated fakes with AI of his own. We'll get to how his deepfake detective works in a moment. But to start, I want to talk to him about what's actually at stake. Honey has only been at Berkeley for less than a year after spending most of his career at Dartmouth.
0: So being here, there's something exciting about being here because I think you are at the heart of the universe of all things tech.
2: Right. No,
0: no question about it. The downside that I don't like is you're at the heart of all things tech. <laughs> <laughs> How
2: is that a downside?
0: Um, well, because... I, I think there's there's two faces to the technology revolution. There's clearly phenomenal things that we have, you know, the internet and mobile devices and access to technology and democratization. But there's also a really dark side to technology, right? Yes. The weaponization of technology, the surveillance capitalism, uh, privacy problems, yeah. um, the rise of hate online,
2: and deepfakes is a good example of those two faces.
0: And so now we've democratized access to technology that used to be in the hands of Hollywood studios and state sponsored actors. And while that is a big step, I would still argue it is a step in a continuum of the ability to create increasingly sophisticated fakes and disseminate course, and amplify yes, them. Yes. Um,
2: in, in spite of the fact that, you know, there will be 10 million people who use it for benign purposes. Sure. One bad actor yeah, yeah. comes so let me, in.
0: Let me give you the scenarios. Right. So lots of first of all, if you haven't done this, you should do this. Go search for Deep Fake and Nick Cage. And some very funny internet users have spliced Nick Cage's face into almost every movie ever made. Yeah,
2: Nick Cage as Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music. I Nick Cage as the off. Scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz. Only had a brain. Nick Cage as Elvis.
0: And it's fantastic. It's like, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's funny. It's, funny. You yeah. know, it's great. It's a
2: thing. Good. Right. And, love and I love it.
0: I love it. Um, it's good for political satire. We can make President Trump say things he never said, and that's funny from the point of view of satire and commentary. But now imagine the following scenario that I take your image because you have done or said something that I don't like, and I insert you into an ex- sexually explicit content, and I distribute that sexually explicit content online to do you harm, both personal harm and, and, and potentially physical danger, which of course is what is happening in the form of non-consensual pornography. Uh, imagine uh, 24, 48 hours before an election, I create a fake video of President Trump. That goes viral, we can swing an election. Uh, imagine I release a video of Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, pick your favorite multi-billionaire CEO, saying um, our company's profits are down 10%. I can manipulate global markets to the tune of billions of dollars. And that takes all of what, 30, 60, 90 seconds? Sure. Um, imagine that I create a video of a military, military leader in a, in a conflict region saying something religiously or racially insensitive. We can, we can lead to riots in the streets.
2: As much as deepfakes seem like the dark side of 21st century technology, Honey says that they're part of a long continuum of doctoring images. In other words, this isn't new.
0: Now, you can go back to Stalin, who had photographs manipulated uh, to remove people who fell out of favor, sort of an, an 1800s version of a deepfake, if you will.
2: Abraham Lincoln. Abraham
0: Lincoln's famous portrait is his head and somebody else's, Calhoun's body. Um, Because apparently uh, Lincoln had a bad posture. And so they created this composite. And of course, the dissemination uh, method, of course, today are very different. Right. So
2: You don't have to have a daguerreotype studio.
0: Exactly. That's exactly right. I would have never (laughs) been able to pronounce that word, so I'm glad you did. Um, So 20 years ago, I was a young faculty member at Dartmouth College, and the internet was really in baby steps. Um, What year is this? This is 1999. Okay. Right. No mobile devices. Digital cameras are a glimmer in our eye. Film still dominates the landscape. But you could see the trends.
2: And by the early aughts, digital took over. Citizen journalism was on the rise. More and more people were walking around with a tiny camera in their pockets that had the ability to post anything they wanted to the internet at any time. I remember the photographs of the bombing of the embassy in Jakarta, it was actually was on 2004. Right. I we had photos of a car bombing at the Australian Embassy before the major news services had it. Exactly. And actually, there are photos from inside the bombing of the um, subway mm-hmm. in London in 2005. Dream, the thing right. that was significant yeah. about it the
0: new York Times was enough?
2: because it was then That's subsequently right. reported. That's right. From documenting the Arab Spring to student protests and police actions, cell phones and citizen powered news was becoming the new norm.
0: They found on my, my radar a little bit later, primarily through organizations like the Associated Press and the Reuters and the New York Times, who would contact me. And they would have material from things like what you were describing, world-altering events that needed to be reported, but they didn't have a reporter there.
2: Can photos, you authenticate right? this? Right.
0: And that was really the start of the world that we enter today, of course.
2: Now things are dramatically different, with nothing more than an off-the-shelf phone and a bit of easy-to-find software. Anybody can create fake content. Combine that with unfiltered social media, and well, you start to see the scale of the problem Honey is dealing with.
0: Probably 2016, probably even earlier, we really started to see the impact of mis and disinformation from election tampering mm-hmm. to the horrific violence in Myanmar and Sri Lanka and the Philippines and India. And now the issue of authentication over the last two, three, four, five years, has taken on a very different scale and a different urgency. Because it used to be, in a court of law, I'd get some evidence, I'd have weeks, months to analyze things, and now we have a fraction of a second before a viral video blows up and people start killing each other somewhere in, in the world. Right. And so.
2: And it's the speed at which it's happening it's is also preventing people from using their neocortex that's and they're exactly going, right. relying entirely right. on their amygdala. Exactly.
0: That's exactly right.
2: And. So, that's the emotional, irrational brain versus the thinking, rational part. Members of the military in Myanmar used Facebook to incite riots with fake stories to fuel hate. Many blame this propaganda for hundreds of thousands of people being displaced and thousands being killed. But social media platforms have long been insulated from liability for distributing harmful content.
0: Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act is the gift from the gods for the technology sector. It says that platforms, and that word is very, very important, are not liable for user-generated content, with a few exceptions. Um, Copyright infringement and child sexual abuse. And by the way, we protected copyright owners before we protected children. What does that tell you about the society we live in? So section 230 says there's no responsibility therefore there's no incentive for the companies to do better so i testified before congress um late last year about 230 reform and a rare show of bipartisan support from the far right to the far left everybody agrees we have to reform tech yeah how we do it is not necessarily agreed upon but we have to start holding these companies and Mark Zuckerberg personally responsible when his services lead to the death of thousands of people in Myanmar. He should be in handcuffs and be going to jail. That's how you affect change on these services. Hear, hear. It's just a question of when it, when it will come and what will form it will take. Okay, now let's talk about what I do here.
2: Yes. Honeyfree's work is in direct response to this lack of accountability in tech. If tech platforms won't invent the tools to fight disinformation, he will. So he is creating a weapon to diffuse deepfakes in the geopolitical landscape, a detective AI system. To understand how it works, you first need to understand how deepfakes operate.
0: Um, So let me start with this image. Mm
2: -hmm. It will
0: show you an image of a person that doesn't exist. Okay. So these six people that you see on my screen here have never existed. They were fully 100% synthesized by a computer.
2: Faces of an older woman, a young boy, people of all races. They could be portraits you'd see on LinkedIn or Facebook.
0: Uh, So these are generated with what is called a generative adversarial network, a GAN.
2: A GAN is a subset of AI, one of the underlying technologies that enable deepfake creation. You can think of it like a pair of AIs. The first AI generates fake images and tries to fool the second AI into thinking they're real. The second AI tries to spot all the fakes. It's sort of a deep learning competition between the two networks.
0: So one of the things that we are concerned about is how this type of technology will be weaponized either in 2020 or 2024 or whatever. And so we've started focusing on really how do we detect deep fakes of world leaders, politicians, people running for office. So I'm going to show you a series of video clips of former President Obama and see if you notice anything. Okay? Okay. Okay. Hi everybody! 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 So those were all second short clips, right? And what you may have noticed is those are all the beginnings of his weekly addresses that he did when he was in the White House. Mm -hmm. And what you might notice is every time he says "Hi everybody," he tilts his head up a little bit. Uh huh. Hi everybody! Hi everybody! Just this little head nod, right? Almost like, "Hey, how you doing?" Like, right, a little New Jersey thing going on there. Right. And what you notice is as he brings his head down, he actually purses his lips. Mm -hmm. So it's this really interesting mannerisms, and Mm -hmm. Donald Trump doesn't do this, and Hillary Clinton doesn't do it, and I don't do it, and you don't do it. It's Mm -hmm. something that's sort of distinct to To former President Obama.
2: Hani is in the business of learning these distinct mannerisms of world leaders, studying hours and hours of video of how President Obama says a certain word. And
0: Mm -hmm. so we look for those mannerisms, and what we find is when we create deepfakes and when other people create deepfakes, they violate these mannerisms that are expected, right? Uh, we build what we call soft biometric models. Mm-hmm. Uh, biometric because we're identifying somebody and soft because we don't expect this to distinguish you from seven billion people in the world, but we think that it will distinguish you from somebody impersonating you.
3: Yeah. Right, right.
2: This biometric model is the core of Hani's detective tool. But there's a bit of an arms race here, because as soon as Honey explains what he's doing, someone is developing a technology to get around it. But so long as he's making it harder to make convincing deepfakes, he's making progress.
0: Our goal is not to eliminate the creation of deepfakes, but our goal is to take the creation of sophisticated deepfakes out of the hands of the amateurs. But if a bunch of teenagers in Macedonia can disrupt a U.S. election, we have a real problem.
2: So there's an interesting tension here with how you deploy this technology.
0: We're going to put it in the hands of journalists, and it's going to look something like this. There's going to be a web portal that you navigate to, and it will be closed off to the public, but vetted journalists will have access to it. And they will upload a video, um, and we will say, ah, this seems to be Donald Trump. We we take that video, we analyze it, we compare it against our model, and we basically come up with an answer. The likelihood of being authentic is X. But what we hope is that as videos and myths and disinformation start to leak out, that we will provide the tools to journalists, who in my opinion are the gatekeepers between the nonsense that is the world and us as the voters to make us informed voters, that we want to enable them with the tools that they need to assess whether something is real or not.
2: Journalists verifying videos before they get widely circulated seems like a step in the right direction. But it opens up some new questions, too, like which journalists get access to the portal? For this reason, Hani Farid says he and his colleagues will publish papers describing what they do, but won't make the data or the code available for fear that it will simply enable the creation of better fakes. He calls it semi-transparency. Do you worry about unintended consequences?
0: All the time. I think what's difficult about this issue is that it's, it's the, literally the unintended part is that it's hard to see them. I mean, if I can see what the consequences are, I can put the safeguards in place. But the problem is we don't see it, right? right? How things are going to be misused by bad actors is very hard to predict. And the best intentions can go awry quickly.
2: So is there such a thing as a good reason to use deepfakes? Like getting an Oscar nomination? Coming up on Should This Exist. Hi, welcome back to Should This Exist.
0: So it was about, God, uh, more than 10 years ago.
2: Dr. Hani Fareed is telling me about a surprising use for machine learning that isn't a deep fake, but uses very similar tech. It's a video detection case that haunted him for years a case that helps explain the advances and the best possible uses for this technology.
0: Let's call it around 2010. I got an email from a father whose son had been killed um, and the whole thing had been filmed on CCTV camera.
2: That's one of those cameras up on a road where the traffic light is.
0: You could see the shooting. You could see the car, but it was so grainy and dark and low quality that you couldn't make out the license plate. You couldn't make out faces. It was horrific."
2: Then after nearly a decade, the technology got to a point where it could really make a difference. Honey was able to pick up on this case, produce and analyze tens of millions of realistic-looking license plates. After combing through them and matching them to images from the CCTV, he had a breakthrough.
0: My understanding as of a year or so ago was that they felt like they had found the suspects in the murder. Um, And that was, I mean, I don't know if it was 10 years, but it was close. It was, was, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: For Hani, it's seeing the meaningful uses of deep learning that make the misuses so frustrating.
0: And so what's really, I think what's interesting about that story is... The latest advances in machine learning and AI, while they do have some problematic applications, there's they some know. really cool applications, yeah. <laughs> and not just Hollywood studios making better special effects. Because if that's all it was, I would say, all right, this isn't right. worth it. Right? That's I don't need better special effects. Days. But that's cool, right? And there are really point
2: taken. But for people who work in the film industry, cool special effects aren't just a fun distraction; they're core to career-making innovations in their field.
3: Let me put McGee on the phone.
2: Like in Martin Scorsese's film, The Irishman, that received an Oscar nomination for its special effects, using a first-of-its-kind technology to make the actors look decades younger.
3: Hello? Is that Frank? Yes. Hiya, Frank. This is Jimmy Hoffa.
2: De-aging Al Pacino, Joe Pesci, and Robert De Niro. For example, De Niro, who was 76 when they were filming, ages from about 30 to 80 And deepfake technology is being used in the art world at the Salvador Dali Museum in St. Petersburg, Florida.
3: Greetings. I am Salvador Felipe Jacinto Dali y Domenech.
2: With a life-sized deepfake of the artist, where he delivers lines drawn from his actual quotes or writing.
3: I have a long-standing relationship with death.
2: Or in Reaching Worldwide Audiences, where David Beckham delivers a message for the Malaria Must Die campaign.
1: Malaria isn't just any disease. It's the deadliest disease there's ever been.
2: (laughs) And with the help of facial reanimation, he speaks in nine languages.
1: The technology underpinning these deepfakes is used for so many other different things that we would view as useful. That actually drawing the boundaries to just shut it down um, seems temptingly easy.
2: That's Professor Garrett Rees at University College London, where they've launched the AI for People and the Planet project with the belief that AI research and innovation is ultimately for positive impact on individuals and societies.
1: So the idea of digital twins, for example, is around... Um, all all over the place, Uh, all the jet engines on all the aeroplanes we ever fly on have a digital twin. And the purpose there is to recreate a simulation so accurately that we can start to use predictive analytics to try and anticipate things happening uh, before they do. Uh, Could we have a digital twin of ourselves to work out the effect of treatments of different uh, preventative mechanisms uh, to keep us healthy?
2: where there's Deep Empathy, a UNICEF and MIT project that uses deep learning in Syrian neighborhoods affected by conflict, and then simulates how cities around the world like Boston or London would look in the midst of a similar civil war.
1: If we're going to understand the phenomena, and if we're going to think about acting globally, um, shouldn't we actually perhaps be thinking of this more positively as an opportunity to set the frameworks? and to think about what we would want to do with this technology as a society.
2: In Washington, D.C., Congresswoman Yvette Clark, a Democrat from New York, believes we need to be actively engaged in creating guidelines or guardrails for deepfakes and its darker side.
3: We're really actually sort of behind in raising the awareness about what type of damage it can do. Representative Clark
2: has put forward legislation called the Deep Fakes Accountability Act, first introduced in June of last year. It says detection doesn't go far enough. We need legal recourse, including digital watermarks and disclaimers on altered video content. Does this bill have, you know,
3: bipartisan support? Well, we're still working on getting our Republicans on board. I think that they're many more uh, colleagues who are interested. Of course, folks don't want to admit to uh, being deceived or or deceptive practices during an election cycle.
2: Oh, that's super interesting. I hadn't even thought about it from that angle. Yes. Ah, okay, because there's a certain amount of shame attached to
3: having been fooled. And there's an advantage to turning a blind eye to the fact that deceptive materials would be out during an election season. There are just certain behaviors that I think have been tolerated. And unfortunately, we, we're not in a climate where uh, if it doesn't happen to you, individuals see a need to protect the American people from it.
2: Along with fears for the 2020 election, the vast majority of deepfakes, up to 96 percent of them by some estimates, are used to violate and degrade women. Over five years, we went from having just a few states with revenge porn laws to having 46. Carrie Goldberg is a lawyer who started her own firm as a victim's rights attorney, specializing in sexual privacy. She's the author of the book Nobody's Victim about many of her cases and her own nightmare experiences. And in only a few years, she's helped craft revenge porn laws across the country.
4: Most of my cases involving deepfakes are celebrities. The public figures are sometimes the first targets and then there's a trickle down. And one of of the things about deepfakes is that it really falls through the cracks of our laws because our revenge porn laws require that your own naked body be exposed and so with deep fakes when you when your head is superimposed onto somebody else's naked body, it doesn't fall within the statutes um, you're not
2: protected oh that is so yeah. strange, right it's so confusing because it's part of your your body just as much as the part below your neck,
4: yeah and it, I mean the humiliation is
2: there either way of course. One question I wanted to ask you is how can we guide women to meaningful action? The Cyber Civil Rights Initiative
4: is one of the main powerhouses that that originally fought for revenge porn laws and is just on the generally the cutting edge, putting pressure on tech companies to do better. The National Women Law Center, their uh, time's up. The fund pays for, for litigations. And as women, one thing that we can do is hold accountable the people who've harmed us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people who do take action in, in criminal law against their offender are doing something that's actually very selfless.
2: Yeah, they're doing it for the rest of us, really. They are. And prevent the perpetrators from doing it again. Absolutely. Welcome back to Should This Exist with Professor Hani Farid at UC Berkeley. In addition to working in the field of deepfake detection, Hani's one of the foremost experts in image forensics in the world. He's been an expert witness in countless civil and criminal trials.
0: I will tell you the things that haunt me. I do a lot of work in the child sexual abuse space, um, which is horrific. I do work in the counterterrorism space, which is equally horrific. A lot of what I do is deal with national security, criminal issues that are extremely high stakes. And while I try to compartmentalize, it's hard sometimes.
2: He helps nonprofits like the Canadian Center for Child Protection, helping them think through technological innovations to get better at finding child sexual abuse material. He says they're the real heroes.
0: And on the flight back, it was Winnipeg to Vancouver, Vancouver to San Francisco. I must have probably spent 80% of that time just in tears. <laughs> I think the person sitting next to me just thought, man, this guy's in bad shape. And then you start thinking about, like, you know, the real victims, the real children behind us. And it is haunting. It is haunting. All of these things are about the weaponization of technology. And deepfakes is just part of that equation. You can get to this point where you wonder, what is wrong with humanity? How... Are we so willing to create so much pain for so many people? I don't, I don't understand that. On the other hand, as a technologist, you know, you have a couple of options. You can bury your head and pretend this stuff doesn't exist and don't look at it, but it doesn't make it go away. And so my job as an academic and as a technologist is try to make the world a better place in, in whatever way I can.
2: With deepfakes, the technology's here, and it's getting better. And it isn't going away. Researchers like Hani Farid are preparing for a future where deepfakes are more common and harder to detect. So with someone who is leading the charge to use AI to fight AI, I couldn't help but ask the question, the question that someone perhaps should have asked a long time ago, when this technology was developed. Should this exist?
0: Looking at the landscape today, I would say no. Is there a landscape five years from now, 10 years from now, where there are some entry applications? Possibly. And that's where the rub is, right? So the rub is, do you say, look, let's stop working on this and because we see more harm than good, but what if we're wrong? What if this eventually leads to some remarkable breakthrough that we can't see today? So that's the rub with science, right? You, you can't predict. So I think probably the better answer is not stop working on it, but put safeguards in place. Um, stop putting the stuff out there for anybody to download. Figure out how do you, for example, embed a watermark into every piece of deep fake content so that we can detect it at the back end without a lot of work. I mean, I think there's there's compromises here as opposed to, guys, let's stop working on this today. Yeah. And I think there's there's some, there's more interesting. Um, compromises that find a balance between protecting our societies and democracies and moving science uh, and technology forward. And so everybody's got to stop saying the problems are too hard and start doing something. And if everybody did something, well, then I think things will get better. And that's sort of my glimmer of hope is that if we keep chipping away at this, things will actually get better.
2: Having talked to an amazing group of people working on deepfakes, I came to the conclusion that given the trade-offs, it's being used to degrade women or to undermine political opponents, it's not worth the Nick Cage videos or seeing Robert De Niro be 30 again. But I also know that stopping deepfakes isn't as simple as passing a single law or inventing a single algorithm. I wish this technology did not exist, but since it does, I'm grateful that people like Carrie Goldberg, Representative Yvette Clark, and Professor Hani Farid are working to mitigate the damage deepfakes do. Their job, and ours, will be to try and see around the corner, and make sure today's best efforts don't become tomorrow's unintended consequences. Look, I don't get to decide should this exist— and neither does this show. Our goal is to inspire you to ask that question. And the intriguing questions that grow from it. What question am I asking about deep fakes at the dinner table? Is the same question that I'm asking about the pork chops we're eating. Whose job is it to ensure they're safe?
1: The genie is out of the bottle. You can't uninvent this technology. So what are we gonna do now?
2: Honestly, just shut it down. Is there anything good about this? Maybe art? I mean, I guess
1: it's just an evolution of Photoshop. People could just make me say stuff that I actually don't believe. The one thing that seems remarkably positive is where you can hear stories from individuals that may not be alive to tell them today. What does it feel like when you hear Shakespeare talk to you?
2: Trying to be open-minded with deep fake, it scares the beep out of me. Agree? Disagree? You might have perspectives that are completely different from what we've shared so far. We want to hear them. To tell us the questions you're asking, go to ShouldThisExist.com, where you can record a message for us. And join the Should This Exist newsletter at ShouldThisExist.com. I'm Katarina Fake. Should This Exist is a Wait What original. The series is produced with generous support of Omidjar Network, a social change venture working to ensure technology is safe, fair, and compassionate, and a world in which individuals have the social, economic, and democratic power to thrive. The series is produced by Mary Beth Kirshner. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Robin Wise is our technical director. Ben Hicks is recording engineer for Dishersound. Danielle Roth is our assistant producer. Catherine Winter, consulting editor. And Alex Berg, our scriptwriter. Our field producer was Amy Standen. Music and sound design by Mark Phillips. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Our executive producer is June Cohen. Special thanks to Darren Triff, Zara Sandman, Emily McManus, Anna Pizzino, Christina Gonzalez, Katie Clark Gray, and Adam Heiner. Visit shouldthisexist.com to find the transcript for this episode. And don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps other people find the show.